You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, folks, season eight. It's a season of firsts. Last week, we let in an administrator from the marketing suite on the show. This week, we induct the first base into the Hall of Fame. Have we gone mad? Plus, two-minute drill. A PR storm surrounds Sandra Radvanovsky just as she is set to sting, sing, sting the stormy Medea to kick off the Met season. Find out how that darn Chardos from Deflator Mouse almost ended her career. Also, apparently nobody can afford tickets to anything. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You just click follow Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. As always, we want to hear your voice. Send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster for your pint and an OBS lapel pin for your lapel just for sharing your own hot take, Oliver Camacho. It was a sad, sad weekend, and uh, there was lots of crying and lots of hand-holding. Uh, of course, I'm talking about the retirement of Roger Federer yes. at, at his own event, the Labor Cup, which took place in uh, London this year. And uh, representing Team Europe uh, were Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Stefano Tsitsipas, Kasper Ruud, Cameron Norrie, and Andy Murray, uh, four yeah. Grand Slam champions in that mix, two Brits. and That's the um, real UN General Assembly, yeah, now, right? <laughs> and Roger Federer and uh, Rafael Nadal played on the first day in a doubles match and lost. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And that was Roger Federer's last match of his career. And oh, wow. um, it's the end of an era. And uh, it's, I don't know if I'm going to get over that one. That was, was pretty tough. Jeez. Matt Cummings. I'm just happy to be here, you know. <laughs> oh, okay, couldn't you even like commiserate with Oliver and tell him it's okay, or pat him on the? I'm not going to lie to him, George. Okay, <laughs> no, it's not okay. Some, it's not, some things are not okay. It's okay moving, to be not moving okay. Moving on, Ashley Hardgrave. Wow, it got very chilly in here all of a sudden. Yeah, you know what? Well, when we're talking about matches that are won and lost, I just won a match of my own against the coronavirus, y'all. She got the COVID, oh, but she know. got the antivirals and she is back she is very tired but she is upright and she is back and she has missed her gentleman on obs Aww. that's very kind of you I, I, it got warmer again in here by the way I, I was at navy pier here in chicago if you've ever been to chicago you you will know navy pier it's this it's like the fisherman's wharf from san francisco ish uh very very touristy but, but i didn't have any fish there. But there's no fish in Lake Michigan. There's rainbow and trout. Don't eat them. <laughs> I happened to be there just as the Bears kicked the winning field. It was time expired. And you can see Aww. Soldier Field from Navy Pier. So, like, everybody exploded and threw beers in the air. And um, it was terribly exciting. And I was there. That's awesome. Let's talk some opera. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, 
Salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. Well, everybody, I am so excited for today's Hall of Fame, not just because it's a Hall of Fame and I love doing Hall of Fames, but because I am inducting my first ever singer into the Hall of Fame, really setting myself up for success with all these singers here to judge me, specifically <laughs> Oliver. Um, but I am very, Why very do excited. I have that reputation? <laughs> oh, gee, Oliver, Oliver, because <laughs> because you're you're always like, oh yeah, you're talking about you're talking about all like the little minutia of the voice and the technique, yeah. and I'm like, they sound pretty good, I guess. Um, but that's and okay. He's like, because... really, you think so? Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. That's the one. Um, but I hedge my bets a little bit by picking a singer that um, that there are recordings of him, but they exist so early that anything I say incorrectly about the voice can be attributed to the fact that it's a re- <laughs> recording from 1920 rather than anything else. But I'm really excited because today we are talking about the great Russian bass, almost baritone Fyodor Chalyapin. Who is um, if who is not necessarily the most talked about singer of all time, but I would argue probably the most important male singer of the early 20th century outside of uh, Caruso. Uh, He's actually born the same year as Caruso, 1873. Uh, he was born in uh, Russia, actually specifically in uh, Kazan, uh, to a literal peasant family. And when I say peasant family, I don't mean they were poor. I mean, like, they were peasants. Because remember, Russia abolished serfdom fully, but I believe it was 1868 the state-owned serfs were finally free. Um, so literally, Chalyapin was born into the first generation of non-nobility Russians who were able to own property marry without permission or own a business uh, without without specific permission from a noble, which is wild. Um, and this is a really interesting time for Russia, not just, you know, uh, in terms of what was going on politically, but also in philosophy, in art, in science, even. Um, obviously, the time period from the freedom of the serfs in the 1860s to the Russian Revolution of 1917 was a huge amount of of turmoil because there was this this sense that they were throwing off centuries of oppression. They felt like they were behind the rest of Europe because that had gotten rid of serfdom back in the Renaissance. You know, there was a, a real sense that anything was possible to this generation. Uh, and I think that is a really defining factor of who Chalyapin was. So as I said, he was born into a very, very poor family. His father was um, was uh, very, very poor. Uh, uh, and, you know, every every time they had a paycheck, that was the only time they could eat anything that had any substance to it. They were always starving. Um, his father uh, drank a lot. He was fairly abusive toward his son. Um, and even as a small child, Chalyapin was destined to, you know, uh, well, he was actually an apprentice to a cobbler. That was the the best they thought he could do financially. But eventually, you know, while he was wandering around on the streets looking for a little bit of money to, you know, just make ends meet, he stumbled into a uh, a church for the first time. And he saw a bunch of other kind of street urchin knee types being paid a pittance to uh, to sing. And he thought, well, I could I think I could do that. He really loved the sound of the voices. So he joined the choir. 
and uh, he really enjoyed it. He uh, and he started to realize that there was more to life than just, you know, this bleak life of Russian poverty uh, in the 19th century Russia. Um, but uh, it wasn't until he was 12 and he went to the theater for the first time that he really understood what he wanted to do, what he had to do. Uh, so I just want to read a quote from him uh, recalling the first time he went to the theater. Uh, he said, the curtain came down, but I still stayed there under the spell of a kind of dream such as I had never had before. When the performance was over and they started to put out the lights, I was overcome by sadness. I had pins and needles in my arms and legs. I remember being unsteady on my feet when I went out into the street. And then not too long after that, he ended up going to his first opera. And then he thought, good Lord, what if it was like that everywhere? What if everybody sang in the streets, in the baths and at work? And he became so obsessed with the idea of opera. He started like creating these little scenarios as like a little like 12, 13 year old kid where he where he pretended his life was an opera. He would start singing across the dinner table to his dad, who did not approve um, and uh, just like would like sing every situation that came across him. Um, and, uh, and eventually he ended up, uh, decided to deciding to leave his home, um, leave the, his family be behind and join a traveling theater troupe, which did operettas. Um, and, uh, and at, so at the age of 17, he's going around and he's getting his first experiences in theater. The first time he's on stage, he's a disaster. He has stage fright, but before too long, he starts to sing, more and more, and he becomes noticed by a retired tenor named Dmitry Uzatov, who saw his potential, and he he starts giving him voice lesson, lessons free of charge to this like starving you know uh, kid who's literally ran away from home to join <laughs> the theater. Didn't even make him repair his shoes. Uh, I know it's it's wild, uh, and and because of that. Um, uh, over the course of the year or two that he got these uh, lessons for free, he learned classical technique um, and he started to incorporate what he knew of the theater into his voice for the first time. And remarkably, that was really the only formal vocal training he had his whole life. Really? He did have he did have further musical training, but not really vocal training from, uh, from this is basically all he gets. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating to me about this uh, about this guy, Chaliapin, is that he had this passion from the moment he first saw an opera that like, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I need to do. Something to do with that, you know. And uh, I Can we think... just like put a put a pin in that right now. Because yeah, that, yeah. That's actually the story of a lot of opera singers mm -hmm. where I was thinking the same exactly thing. Mm -hmm. yeah exactly but I think just so remarkable to to have that dream when the first time he went to the theater he was so overcome with the idea that he'd never yeah, seen he should have been thinking about nice food not, not, about, <laughs> not about music you know? I mean he he literally like literally when he was like learning to sing and learning to perform um he there was a comment in the biography I was reading on him um, that uh, that he went in to have like uh, some sort of examination, and they X-rayed him, and they and they like g gave him some food immediately because he was so empty inside. They never oh, seen it that bad before. Boy. So sad. But eventually, In he starts to get better and better. Of the 
I was going to say it's Russian. giving like Tom and Jerry vibes. <laughs> I Please. mean, he literally ran away to join the circus. Only the circus was an operetta. Donate, donate now to to uh, to support a, a poor Russian a base. Oh my god! Anyway, so he eventually made his way onto a real opera stage in Tbilisi, and then uh, eventually to the Mamontov Private Theater, uh, and he had his first big hit in a leading role as Mephistopheles in Gounod's Faust. So I want to hear. Obviously, this isn't from his uh, original big splash, which was in you know uh, he was in his twenties at the time. Oh, they so didn't live stream. They didn't live stream the eighteen uh, ninety something <laughs> performance. But there is a nineteen thirty recording of him singing "Le Vaudor, uh from Gounod's Faust, uh, and I'm going to put that in right now. Le distinctive character being mm-hmm. creative in uh, and this is what everyone was remarking on so quickly was like this guy can act which is you know shocking not just in opera in general sometimes but in like the world of theater keep in mind this was the time period when we had uh when acting books uh, acting lessons acting techniques were literally like when you rec- see a tragic line this is the sad face you must make for the audience to know you are feeling something sad or if you are happy you need to have a big smile on your face and put your right. arms out like this like this was the state of theater at the time and russia was really on the verge of overturning a lot of things in this time period as i mentioned before but one of those things was theater and if you come from a sort of a more uh if you'll forgive the term straight theater background as i do um, most of my training is in plays, non-singing things. Uh, and if you have any sort of notion of the history of that, you will recognize the name Konstantin Stanislavski, oh, who yes. was known for the Stanislavski technique, which, if you don't know, was the first time that anyone really applied psychological principles to acting. <laughs> the, the titular method, as it were. Exactly. Well, uh, the method actually spun <laughs> off of some of his uh, some some of his writings later on. Um, but uh, oh, so it wasn't a co- coincidence that the Stanislavski method was created by Stanislavski. That's okay. It it does yeah. make <laughs> sense, Oliver. You're you're right there, there with are. us. You got it. Who's got buried it. in Grant's tomb? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes, the acting method that ruins so many performers over generations. But I think if you know as much about theater history as I do or have an interest in it and you know about Stanislavski, (laughs) (laughs) and you know about Stanislavski, you will be you will sit and 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 stand at attention when you hear a quote from the man Stanislavski himself, who said at one point, my system is taken straight from Chaliapin. 
And that's so interesting to me because opera has never had the reputation for having the greatest actors out there. Still doesn't. It still doesn't. Yeah. Uh, but um, but in this time period, Charlie Oppen was not only on the cutting edge, he was the cutting edge of acting and putting music and feeling genuinely into his music. And I think that's that's something you can really hear in what's his most famous role, Boris Gudnov of Boris Gudnov. Uh, this is, um, uh, there's actually a, I was, when I was searching around for recordings, one of the albums I found that was a compilation of his old, um, of his old records was, uh, the, the title of the collection was the first Boris. And while he was not the first person to perform the role of Boris, he truly he was did cement. Exactly. He cemented what Boris is all about. And if you listen to a lot of his recordings, especially his Russian recordings and his Boris Gudinov's, you uh, it's remarkable how well they hold up from a from a uh, from a singing, not just a singing perspective, but from an acting perspective. It's such an acting heavy role um, uh, to, to the extent where you start to see that even here in the 21st century, you know, uh, modern Boris's are still hearkening back to his original interpretations of what this role is and can be. Uh, so let's just hear a little bit of uh, Boris and we'll talk about it. This is his, uh, this is from a recording in 1931 with the London Symphony and the conductor is Max Steinman. So as you can see, um, there is a great deal of presence in the voice in terms, not just in terms of, of uh, the, the, the depth of the, of the vocal power here, but there is a certain knowledge of every word that's coming out of his mouth. One of the things that's really cool when you listen to Chaliapin is that even though a lot of these recordings are just atrocious audio quality because they were recorded, you know, in 1910, 
um, they his diction is so clear mm-hmm. and on every word and every syllable, you know exactly what he's trying to convey to you, the audience, even in a recording format. Um, and it's, it's just one of those things that makes it so fun to listen to. And also since you couldn't like edit recordings back then, like mm-hmm. these are all mm-hmm. live takes. Like this is yeah. a pretty good idea of what he would have sounded like singing these live. And I love how spontaneous it is. Like how those turns on a dime that he's able to pull off that just mm. make it feel really immediate. Yeah. And he's absolutely. having a good time. Like, Oh yeah, he tell. is. He's having a good time. He, he I mean, like, especially like he, he loved melting into these roles if you look at like a series of pictures of Shelley Oppen on stage, there are no two pictures that look the same. Like he he was uh, to to borrow a, a similar generation. He was like the Lon Chaney Jr. of his generation, or is it senior? <laughs> I can't remember. Oh that was a that's a deep yeah. cut for you. But like, oh, you know, I'm in it. I'm a Phantom Stan. I know who Lon Chaney is. Oh, thank you, thank you. But like the 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 depths of makeup, the, he would he would make himself unrecognizable. He would often do his makeup himself, um, and he was very particular about what other people did it to him because he really wanted to melt into the character fully. Uh, and Boris is a great example too because he didn't just learn uh, the title role of Boris. That's what he's most famous for, but he actually um, met Sergei Rachmaninoff. Uh, who taught him how to read a score like a composer and recommended that he learn every single role in the opera, which is something that he started to do, uh, except for the, you know, higher voices that he couldn't do. (laughs) That's something he started to do for pretty much any opera he came to was learn everything. So you'll even hear like recordings of him singing Pimen, you know, it's it's really it's really fascinating because he really wanted to know the overall structure and he wanted to be able to build everything to a single cu- uh, cumulative moment, which had, which in his words, had to be like specific, uh, specifically perfect. No matter what dynamic you came into it as, that moment had to be constructed so well to preserve the sort of web of tension and drama in any work. And he actually taught that to Rachmaninoff, who used that uh, technique later on when he was doing performances on uh, in his uh, uh, on the piano. Uh, Shelley Uppen very quickly because of this technique and because of his voice became a worldwide sensation uh, by the early 1910s. He was the first Russian singer to really become a known sort of celebrity in the world. Um, his father still did not approve. <laughs> he took him, I think it was, he took him to a performance at the Met. And after the show, his, his dad was like, why do you keep doing this theater stuff? And like, and like, meanwhile, Charlie Oppen was like, I'm, I'm literally eating food for the first time, father. Um, But, you know, whatever. Uh, But I will say he wasn't always the easiest to work with, because especially in the time where, you know, you're supposed to just like stand in a place, do an expression. um, And that's that's acting. He would often frustrate other singers and conductors by going a little bit off book with like the blocking he would like he would like turn over here or he'll like give a completely different sort of reading of a phrase that was really unexpected Geraldine Farrar especially said that he was a great partner to sing with but uh, she would say that he would often hog the limelight whenever there was a really juicy moment that just happened to happen during that performance um he would also pick fights with music directors and um and sometimes would demand that uh, certain conductors uh, uh, leave 
Uh, he actually <laughs> wrote down lists of demands. There was a conductor who once chose the wrong tempo. Um, and he said, not my tempo. Uh, and uh, he wrote this letter. I'm just gonna read a couple of quotes from it because it's so funny to me. Uh, the letter is titled Conditions Under Which I, Chalyapin, Am Prepared to Work at the Imperial the Theaters. Uh, <laughs> he required um, the principal director to step aside and relinquish all authority to him. He required a staff member to basically uh, deal with any problems he might have with any props on stage. He also uh, demanded that the conductor be immediately fired and someone else be hired <laughs> that he approved. Sure. Uh, and uh, he, he, he says that, um, referring to the conductor, his presence is not only of no use and no interest to anyone, uh, but it is corrupting in musical terms. In other <laughs> words, he had opinions about his roles. And that's why you can always, like, depend on a recording of Chalyapin to be, like, his interpretation. This is the only uh, open letter that I will support. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, and he would do... Uh, oh, I also wanted to mention, once at the Met, uh, he, he was not afraid to scandalize audiences either. Uh, for Don Basilio in uh, Barber, uh, uh, Don Basilio is a, a, a priest. And at the time period, American audiences were very used to a certain even in a comic opera, a certain decorum, shall we say. Mm. Um, but uh, his interpretation of Don Basilio is that he picked his nose all the time and wiped it on his shirt. And audiences did not like that. <laughs> but he was just like, you know what? That's what I want. That's uh, that's that's what I want to push in my art. So I just want to hear uh, a Pushing quick little boogers. clip. And just a little bit of boogers, just to, to let, the, let the opera nope. go down. Nope. I, I think this is a really fun example of... Uh, of what Chalyapin can do to really personalize something in the common repertoire. Because I think it can be easy to fall into the trap of uh, listening to Chalyapin, of thinking of him as the serious Russian bass guy. Um, but uh, I think this is a great example of what he can also sound like when he's not in that Russian opera box. This is him singing Leporello's Madamina from Don Giovanni in 1923. Oh, 
having a good time (laughs) nose picking aside yes you're right he's having a good time the nose picking i find abhorrent but still here's what i like about it it is very free it sounds Mm. free so in in tandem with he sounds like he's having a good time it feels very free it feels very relaxed and another thing that i really like about it is that especially with baritones lower baritones there tends to be a real stark difference between their pianissimos, their sotto voces, and then mm-hmm, how they sound mm-hmm. in sort of the louder, fuller. His is so much more consistent. It sounds like the same voice all the way up and all the way Absolutely. down. Absolutely. Yeah. I really he's appreciate this, that. And he's got this like, uh, he he's not scared to make something completely different than what it is on the page. Uh, he's not as scared to like take like a fast tempo. He's got like this... Um, ease of delivery uh in this one that i don't think i've really ever heard from a a similar uh voice well to be Um, clear he was recomposing that's not that was no longer about that so yes absolutely so maybe that's why you haven't heard it before that is that is true doing it these are not uh, these are not period accurate ornamentations we're talking about here but then again you know and if you really want to get granular with it even the Boris Gudinov was the Rimsky-Korsakov version that he was singing. So, uh, but he has like a, a, a ver- uh, like this determination to like really be unique and try to push the art as much as he can. Um, as a matter of fact, that seems to be his only motivation. Um, uh, he apparently joked sometimes that he was only uh, singing for the money, but he was pretty outspoken against other singers who were only in it for the money. Um, he didn't like, uh, he didn't like being around fans to the point where he even sometimes got violent with them if they were getting a little too rowdy. Um, he didn't like the paparazzi or the equivalent. He mostly just kind of wanted to just like, uh, hang around and do his art and be on stage. Um, and luckily we do have one performance that you can actually see a video of him in, um, that I want to point out. This is, um, the GW Pabst film, Don Quixote. Not the Massenet opera, which he was also known for, um, but this is actually uh, uh, just a normal Don Quixote film. film. They they actually, uh, Jacques Hibert wrote uh, four, I think, songs, yep. eight or four, one of those two four. Uh, songs for the for the piece. There was actually a big scandal because they also asked like Ravel and there was a big problem, um, but I won't get into that. Um, and you can actually hear him singing in English. Uh, granted, this is near the end of his career. Uh, English is not his language. In fact, it's very funny because at the time period, they would often uh, do films in multiple uh, languages at the same time. This one has a French and a German version as well. I couldn't find the German version anywhere online, but the French version, um, they just let him sing and it's gorgeous. But in the English version, they actually have to have subtitles for this final song at the very end. Um, but it's really interesting and it kind of gives you a sense of how this might apply to film. Oh, 
interesting to go and if you have a chance you really should go on youtube and see if you can find uh the french version probably is a little bit better but the english version is pretty interesting too uh because you he has this gravitas during the whole film that none of the other 30s comic actors can do and by today's standards it's really theatrical it's not going to be like the same like performance that would win an oscar in the, today in 2022 but you can see that he's working on a different and like more personally felt level than really anyone else in that cast. And it's just really fascinating to hear him in a context that is not a scratchy recording. You actually get that visual component that's so enthralled audiences at the time. Well, I'm just impressed with the production value. Uh, the singing on a horse, having a live <laughs> horse. It's very impressive. Doing the entire, like he did like, like uh, when I say these are different versions, these are not dubs either. Like, like, they acted each each entire film in French, in English, and in German, uh, yeah. which I think is super neat. Um, but I really want to uh, close up here talking a little bit about his legacy, because I think that's the thing that is most important to think about. Because oftentimes I'll come across a pre-1950s singer, and I'll be interested in their lives and their history, um, but... Uh, but they often don't seem to have made much an impression on on how people sing now, especially in the opera world. Famously, uh, Caruso's, you know, full voice singing from the top to the bottom of his range completely changed how tenors sang for basically 100 years. Uh, and Chaliapin was similarly impactful in how he approached singing and acting at the same time. He set the standard for basses. Sure, there were other great Russian basses um, at the time period that he had rivalries with, but he's the only one who's held up. And if you listen to recordings of Russian singers, particularly from the early 20th century, the ones that uh, they sound remarkably modern. And the reason for that is because they're all imitating 
Chalyapin and his performances. He introduced to the world um, outside of Russia basically every Russian opera you've ever heard of that wasn't written by Tchaikovsky. Uh, or Boris Gunov, of course, Kovanshina, um, Prince Igor by Borodin, Rimsky's Sadko, um, uh, and Mozart and Salieri, which is a which is fun. He actually uh, uh, was in the premiere of that. He learned that with Rimsky Korsakov. Uh, Rubinstein's The Demon, which is a little bit more obscure, but I love that one. Um, and he also popularized Don Quixote, Boito's Mephistophele. Uh, he even had a Japanese steak named after him at one point. Uh, that's actually a fun story about that. He went to Japan on a tour and he had a toothache and the steak was like, too tough for him. So he asked the chef, um, is there anything we can do to get this more tender? And so the chef like devised a way to like uh, break it down with like, like a lot of onions and stuff. And it's still popular in Japan today. It's uh, there's actually a cooking anime recently that had it be a focus of one of its episodes because <laughs> that's what I found when I googled the Charlie Oppen steak. Oh my god! And, and if nothing else, that means you've got a legacy. You know, you know, if you've got some sort of food item named after you, I mean, Oliver. I think Oliver really wants that for himself. And you know, uh, having seen Instagram photos of Oliver's cooking, I really hope that you one day get to the point where. There is an Oliver steak uh, uh, with your name on it that people can talk about 100 years from now. Uh, this is uh, really one of his greatest legacies, though, is how he brought Russian folk music to the international stage. So I want to close with um, probably his most famous folk song that he uh, sang into a microphone several times. Uh, the last piece he actually ever recorded was, th was this. I don't think it's, it's not this recording. I couldn't find the specific recording that uh, was his final one. But this is him singing the famous Song of the Volga Boatmen uh, with the Albert Coates Orchestra in 1927. And it really encapsulates what he's all about. This man of the people coming up from poverty, knowing the struggle of these boatmen, of these, of these peasant people, hearing these sounds in his childhood and finding the drama and the music inherent to it and bringing it to the world. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
Ah, uh, the Hall of Fame just, it's a very long corridor now. There's just so many people in it. <laughs> long is right. <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave, what's on your sports mind? Uh, listen, the Razorback updates that nobody cares about, nobody asked for, are back! Do, do, do. <laughs> Football season is here. Uh, unfortunately, they were doing real great until they played Texas A&M this week. Uh, they are still in the AP Top 25. They're sitting at number 20. But more importantly, we are living in the upside down. And anybody that follows SEC football will understand this. Why are we in the upside down? Because Kentucky and Tennessee are in the college football top 20, top 25. See, I can't even get it out. I'm so upset. At number seven and number eight. So to conclude, up is down, black is white, and I'm a conservative. It's it's maddening. It's like basketball is the new football with teams like that. If you've been following the OBS the last couple weeks, you will know that the OBS is in the Opera Philadelphia Fantasy Football League, taking on the likes of Lawrence Brownlee, General Director David Devan, and uh, I run our little team with uh, enemy of the show, Tobias, right? He writes a little update. Get this. He says, George, we are undefeated after week three. And remain in first place after incredible performances from our running backs and tight end. And no thanks to shoddy management by yours truly, meaning Tobias, who, like a dummy, left one of our roster spots blank after picking up a new quarterback on the waiver wire and assuming it would be approved automatically. It Uh. was approved, but then not automatically inserted into the lineup. It's okay, Oliver. Go back to sleep. To recap, in spite of poor management this week, Due to our general manager's draft skills, which is me, we remain atop the standings with an unblemished record. Bring it on. And bring on the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The first time Sandra Radvanovsky opened the Metropolitan Opera season, she played Norma, a mother who contemplates murdering her two young sons as revenge against her faithless lover. Five years later, she's back in a role that's strikingly similar in Luigi Cherubini's Medea, a work having its first ever Met production to to kick off the company's season. Meanwhile, OperaWire reports that Radvanovsky has no future contracts with the Met, as Both The Soprano and General Director Peter Gelb have acknowledged a rocky relationship. Lyric Opera of Chicago has announced the four singers joining the 2023-24 Ryan Opera Center. Mezzo-Sopranos Lucy Baker and Sophie Maikawa, tenor Trayvon D. Walker, and bass baritone Christopher Humbert Jr. They will be added to the ranks of the ensemble, which includes friends of the show Catherine Henry, pianist Chris Reynolds, and pianist and conductor Donald Lee III, as well as seven other singers, plus a stage director a stage manager, and a stage manager, two roles that were added to the program in the current season. An opera written in a pre-Columbian indigenous language will debut at Washington, D.C.'s National Museum of the American Indian. Nomongeta, which means dialogue or conversation, is the first opera written in Guarani. In the opera, the Paraguayan tenor Jose Monguelos plays a contemporary native, Warani, who talks with Christopher Columbus on the cultural impact that colonization has had. The George London Foundation for Singers has a new name, the George and Nora London Foundation for Singers. 
said executive director and president John Hauser, the foundation will now honor equally these two giants of opera and to continue its work in both their names. If you need a second George for the title, just let me know. Crunching the numbers, a survey by the New York Times reveals that ticket prices for live performances have risen at a rate faster than most Americans' earnings. Lincoln Center threw down a gauntlet this summer when it made the mostly Mozart festival season Choose What You Pay. The suggested ticket price was $35, but the average paid was just over $19. In trade news, Boston Lyric Opera announced that acting general and artistic director Brad Vernatter will be elevated to general director and CEO. Board President Michael Puzo said there is clear enthusiasm on the board for Brad's leadership and his artistic vision during the past two seasons, which brought the company's new artistic triumphs and growth while navigating unexpectedly troubled waters. Now he can finally get that sweet, sweet dental insurance. Oh yeah, baby. Laura Burns will be the next executive director of Opera Naples. I'm thrilled to work with Maestro Ramon Tebar and join Opera Naples in their endeavors to cultivate access to arts and culture for the Naples community and throughout Southwest Florida, said Burns, who brings over 25 years experience in arts management. Jan Strandholm will step down as general director of the Savonlina Opera Festival. It has been a great honor and joy to head the Savonlina Opera Festival for the past 10 years. I feel privileged to have worked with such a top team. I never thought I would be in this position for this long, but the people, the opera, Olavenlina Castle and Savonlina swept me away, said Strandholm. Savonlina Artistic Director Vila Matveyev will add general director to his title. And on this day, September 26th, in 1782, it was the first performance of Giovanni Paisalo's Il Barbiere di Sibiglia. Meanwhile, in 1812, rival composer Gioacchino Rossini gave a premiere of La Pietra del Paragone, and then four years later, his opera La Gazzetta premiered. In 1835, Gaetano Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor premiered. In 1867, it was the birth of tenor Adolphe Maréchal, who created the role of Julien in Charpentier's Louise, and the Ringer in Massenet's The Ringer of Notre Dame. In 1895, Victor Herbert's operetta The Wizard of the Nile premiered, and then a few years later, 1898, his operetta The Fortune Teller premiered. Also in 1898, George Gershwin was born. In 1930, German tenor and Hall of Famer Fritz Wunderlich was born. 1938 saw the first performance of Kurt Weill's Knickerbocker Holiday. Happy birthday to American tenor Gary Lakes, born this day in 1950. 1957 saw the first performance on Broadway of a show called West Side Story. Happy birthday to American composer Gabriela Elena Frank, and she was born in 1972, by the way, on, in 1998. Were any of you born in 1998? Uh, Philip Glass's <laughs> opera, The White Raven, was premiered. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little bit of um, Fritz Wunderlich singing a song 
in German that's supposed to be in Spanish, uh, written by Mexican composer Augustin Laura. That's Granada, and that's a very Germanic interpretation, but it's so good. Uh, it's so wrong, but it's so good. It's been a great <laughs> week for, for Georges, by the way. George London, George Gershwin. Mm. I'm just, I'm George Sater. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm just feeling the love here. Um, Premier Palooza. Uh, yes, it seems like opera seasons have always been right around this time. TikTok, is, here we come. <laughs> it seems to be premier palooza in opera history. And also what I am calling uh, Gersh Wunderlich Stein story. That's the other thing that happened on this day in opera history. <laughs> Yikes. Let, let's get into crunching the numbers right away. I, I came across the, the Times article in this quote from Blake Anthony Johnson. Who's, he's the president and CEO of Chicago Sinfonietta right here in town. So he tells this story. So he used to ask other musicians, he's a cellist, what is the most you would pay for your ideal concert? And their responses would, would show that it was nowhere near what the patrons of the Sinfonietta would, would actually pay. I want to turn this over to you three. Like, what is the most you would pay for your ideal opera and how do you go about answering that question how do you figure out what that dollar amount would be and how will it compare that's a tough that's a that's a tough thing to say i will open with asking me at different points in my life you would have gotten a different answer uh because the you know the things that you are willing to sort of expend your income for often are proportionate with how much of a percentage of your income you actually have to expend. Mm -hmm. And so there's a point in my life when $30 would have been a big, big investment for me to go to anything, especially an opera, even though I love it. Now that feels a little bit more manageable. But as we know, most A houses, you're not going to be getting tickets for 30 bucks. Oliver, I it looked like you were going to say something. So I want no, I mean, like, to main, hop in. Main floor tickets at Lyric Opera of Chicago can, you know, be up to $200. Easily. Uh, yeah. Easily. And um, I get tickets to a lot of stuff because of the free publicity I give to a lot of organizations. So I'm happy to receive them. But then there are these organizations that I know that every ticket counts for them. And so I yeah. just, I buy my ticket, you know. And I'm, I guess, at age 40 something right now with a decently paying full time job, I'm not, I'm nowhere near six figures, but I'm like, I'm doing way better than I was like two years ago. Um, <laughs> I'm willing to pay up to fifty dollars to see a show. Um, I'm happiest yeah. when it's un when it's under forty. Uh, if it's if it's if I pay the full fifty or more, then I become extremely critical of what I'm watching. I better have an amazing experience. <laughs> I, I think that that is right around the sweet spot. Like I yeah. I would be willing to go over fifty if I like absolutely had to see it, but like mm -hmm. much more than. 60 70 like really gets to be unmanageable like yeah. with with the world as it is today and that is you know that will sometimes get you a nosebleed seat yeah. like in a broadway theater or in a house well and yeah. it keeps going back to you know when we get into these times where we are nearing recession or slowly inching mm -hmm. towards recession or as some people will tell you barreling towards it and it's going to be here in 10 minutes um the idea of necessities become paramount when it comes to the amount of income that you have, especially if your income has not risen at the rate that things have inflated or the cost of living has. Mm -hmm. And so things like I, I have a friend, for example, who is a florist. She's very good. And but her her work is feast or famine, because when 
times get hard, one of the first things people stop doing is buying flowers. Uh, and I feel like in so many ways, the arts are kind of like that. You know, it's not it's not housing, it's not food, it's not clothing. So it tends to be one of the first things that falls off. Other forms of entertainment, for example, your broadband internet that you need, your subscription services, those will probably stay because you can't go out if you can't afford to. But as we're thinking about the the way that things have inflated in terms of cost of living, that's one of the things that I think about is that people are just going to be, they're going to have less to offer and they're going to be less willing to expend what they do have to offer when it comes to artistic, live artistic performances. And like even separate from your any kind of macroeconomic cycling, like your own life cycle can really... Like you were saying earlier, Ashley, like I remember the drop off when I graduated from college really clearly of like I wanted mm -hmm. to go to all this stuff and you couldn't access student tickets anymore. And I was like, I just graduated. Like I can't go from paying $20 a ticket to paying $200 a ticket for the right. exact same seats that I was able to get a year ago. Like not that much changes in a year. And then you end up it, it, being the kind of audiences that people theoretically want to bring in, but you can't afford to get there. Yeah, and yet in sports, I don't think we're ever going to see that drop off, right? Look, no. the the last row at Soldier Field for a Bears game is ninety dollars, and that's probably an yep. out of date price from maybe a year or two ago. My son and I are going to go see Fiddler on the Roof at Lyric later this week. We'll be on, talking about it on the show next week. Ninety dollars per person. Yeah, John Oliver is doing a stand up show at the Chicago Theater uh, later in December. Also $90, right? So like, are these all the same $90? Like, what's what's the difference here? And what are the things that people are going to say, you know what, skip it versus the things of like, I've got to be there? It depends on who your audience is and what they're actually into. Like you said, sports, they are it's it's an overflowing fountain of people and possibilities of ticket purchasers. John Oliver, niche audience, but again, highly educated it's a wider pool than, than an opera house it's, it's certainly a wider pool than an opera house yeah so a, as much as yes they're not the same 90 dollars, they're also not coming after the same people that have that 90 dollars. And, and i think that the the relative scarcity makes a big i makes a big difference like a one night only ticket is a very different kind of calculus than there are 16 shows or even there are five shows just in terms of you know how much money is chasing a, a, a finite number of tickets. Yeah. The only way we're going to solve this is if we follow a European model and we have the government throwing more money to these opera houses. That, that There is no other way. Unless, of course, we just ask Sandra Radvanovsky to solve it, and then it'll be great. <laughs> so I don't understand the PR strategy that her publicist uh, took this time. Um, I mean, she got this beautiful beautiful article in the New York Times. And I don't know if people get the New York Times print anymore. I miss mine, but um, the web version <laughs> is stunning. Uh, incredible production photos of Medea. Mm. And uh, a <laughs> she long... looks amazing. Yeah. She's been doing something with her arms. I love it. Um, and uh, she's uh, talking a, a lot about her personal life and how her recent divorce is uh, sort oh, of related. She's very open about that on her socials. Like, it's yeah. not a secret. Yeah, I know. But this is the New York Times. It's not like everybody reads her social media. You know, this is a lot more right. people are going to see this now, you know? Yeah. yeah. 
But also, have you met anybody that's gotten divorced? It's it's the forefront of conversation for no. many of them for quite some time. But still, it's just I mean, there was an there was a time when these things were not talked about. I'm not saying that like we should get, go back to those times, but I'm just saying like it's like there's less mystery. Sandra's about giving her. us a cultural reset. I don't know what <laughs> yes. else. I love, how, wait, how, I love it. How old is Sandra? She's in fifty three. I think it yeah. says. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. So there is, as, as the lady on the panel, uh, there is a magical thing that happens as you enter each decade after 30, you become more and more the truest form of yourself. If you have epic life events that happen in there, it just drives that point further home. She was a badass before. But let me tell you, the amount of, and I'll do this so we don't get an explicit warning, the amount of Fs that you have to offer when you turn 40 <laughs> decrease by 95%. I yeah. care so A logarithmic much scale. Yeah. I am so excited about turning 50 because, man, I'm going to have one F and I'm going to spend it wisely. So Miss <laughs> Radvanovsky is, she's living her life. I'm proud. Fair enough. Fair enough. But then we find out this story from the AP of all places that um she w- that Peter Gelb heard her sing a bad Rosalinda and it's very easy to have a bad Rosalinda it's it happens I mean, to a lot yeah. of people you know mm-hmm. and as a result um wasn't really uh one of one of Peter Gelb's top choices well and it's I, weird that well I think that that's talking about like two decades ago and it's kind of yeah, weird that it's making it into her PR sense. again because it's like very old news well, maybe that's why they're trying to really hype this up because this is kind of a swan song of sorts. Like she's not going to work there until Peter's gone. Like I, uh, and I think that's her choice. Did this this BS of the like the rocky relationship? Okay, let's. let's I think let's that's PR. It. I mean, I think Peter Gelb. I think Peter Gelb is very yeah. talented at this, and I actually really? think that I yeah. <laughs> I think that they are actually probably working on her futures, but they're just right now. This is a weird moment where she doesn't have another engagement lined up at the Met, and they're just somehow they let that leak out to the press which is a very weird thing to let so it's like a reverse fake relationship between like a heartthrob and a starlet it's just the reverse i mean you don't you don't let somebody open your season and then say oh no we don't like her (laughs) right exactly like ever for for the last 10 years at least she's been like a huge stalwart of the met roster like she's their go-to for verity she's been their go-to for Mm -hmm. the belcanto queens and for norma like they really they, they've been putting a lot of eggs in her basket, justifiably so. But And so to bring up, like, the fact that two decades ago, they they weren't super interested in her is, like, it really did seem like it was coming out of left field, but it must have been intentional. Listen, if you had a player and a coach on a sports team that weren't getting along, but that team was winning, everybody would look beyond it, right? Because it's not about, it's oh, we, we're having a rocky relationship. It's like, no, yeah. we're, put, we're putting Ws up there, right? Only in the theater where we... Where, which is the farthest thing from a meritocracy, right? We all, we can all agree that the theater is not a meritocracy, right? Because you have like people's relationships affecting who gets hired and who doesn't. It makes no sense. Let us wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Great to have the whole team here, part and parcel. Good call, bad call. I'm going to take you home, Oliver Camacho. I've got a short list here. Uh, first, a, a correction was issued on this uh, New York Times article that we we're talking about today. I saw this. Uh, and the correction is <laughs> says, an earlier version of a picture caption in one instance misspelled the name of the main character played by soprano Sandra Radvanovsky. She is Medea, not Madea, <laughs> as in the time of Harry movie. <laughs> Get it. <laughs> uh, so that was a that's an even call. Uh, bad call goes to Xfinity, my cable provider, who Fair. 
Uh, yes. Um, I was looking for this labor cup thing. I mean, I knew it was happening. Yeah. But the um, listings never updated correctly, and wow. I, as as a result, did not record this iconic, you know, final match of Roger Federer. Ah. I, only, I only saw it in oh. clips and on social media, but I wanted to own it for myself. At least watch the whole thing for myself because there was lots of like, you know everybody hugging and crying and you there's literally pictures of Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer like holding hands and like weeping and it seems to be like it would have been very cathartic for me to see that so bad call Xfinity we just today destroyed an asteroid we sent NASA sent up like a spaceship to like crash with an asteroid so if we could do that <laughs> why can we get our listings right for stupid tennis channel uh, good call goes to Canadian color to soprano Marie Eve Munger whose new album just dropped called Maestrino Mozart. And uh, we have plenty of Mozart aria recital discs, but uh, for once we get one that is like, you don't know any of these pieces. These are completely random Mozart arias from bizarro early Mozart operas. Please enjoy. Matt Cummings. I'll start with a quick one from Weston, who had to drop off after his Hall of Fame, but did want to make sure that one of his trivia pieces that didn't make it into the segment did make it onto the show. And that is that Fyodor Chalyapin's son, Fyodor Chalyapin Jr., does in fact play the grandfather in Moonstruck, which makes him canonically Cher's (laughs) great-grandfather. Yes. Okay. I've heard it all now. My good call is that I... um, Went to New York for a day this weekend mm. and did get to see Six with my family. Whoa, and it is whoa, so much fun. How, like, how was it? It was... So good, y'all. The, the energy is unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And and even the if you've listened to the songs and you're like, I don't get it. Like, it is a very different experience live. Like, the, the charisma is off the charts. I had, I had a blast. Ashley Hardgrave, good luck beating that. Uh, my good call is to Pax Lovid and the Moderna Company for providing the things that got me past COVID. They're the only reasons I'm upright. And also, good call to me for not coughing into my microphone during this entire recording. How dare you put your own health above a Broadway show? I feel like we, we missed a chance to name this show Pax Lovid and Moderna, an opera by Rimsky-Korsakov. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Lashana Tova, you all, happy new year. Hope you have a sweet new year. Get those apples and honey ready. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Again, make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher and Spotify. You click follow on Apple Podcasts. Hit the plus sign. Send us that voice memo or email us your own hot take. Operaboxscore at gmail.com going to get the OBS beer coaster and the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your voice. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you sort out your rocky relationship with the Met. (laughs) Back with an all new show next week. Plus you get more opera headlines more hot takes, and more undefeated fantasy football tight ends. Join us.